Grace and peace be multiplied to each of you this evening in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Several decades ago, a group splintered away from traditional black Baptist churches with a different emphasis doctrinally. And after a meeting one day, some young preachers were gathered around my pastor, and one of them dared ask him what he thought about that splinter group. I will never forget his answer. He just simply said, I'll be here when they get back. (laughs) And I thought of that exchange this afternoon after hearing Dr. MacArthur open up the word of God for us. With so much new trends, theories, and tricks, this pulpit has remained unmoved for more than 50 years. And we have been blessed and benefited by it. And it is a joy to invade the campus of Grace Community Church again for Shepherd's Conference. I wish I had a lengthy amount of time to publicly say what Dr. MacArthur means to me. Outside of my own father, there is no one who has had more influence on my preaching than Dr. John MacArthur. If you never heard me, let me be clear up front. An H.B. Charles sermon does not sound anything like a John MacArthur sermon. (laughs) Uh, You have to turn the volume up five notches to get an H.B. Charles sermon. But that is what his godly example and his faithful exposition has taught me. That preaching is to be measured by biblical truth, not pulpit style. And I want to publicly thank him for the privilege and honor of being invited again and to be with you to share God's word. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you for the privilege to sing praise to your high name with grateful hearts for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king. It is in his name now we pray afresh that you would be our teacher. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word. Help us to strip off tonight all malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, and slander so that as newborn infants we may crave the pure spiritual milk of your word and grow thereby having tasted of your goodness. Help me, as it were, to be simply a mouthpiece for the text. And may your name alone be glorified. As the word is explained, we pray. Amen. If you would take your copy of God's word and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. I was assigned the topic to speak tonight on a worthy workman. 
a worthy workman, of course. My thoughts immediately, naturally, and happily went to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Well, let me correct that. I was eager to preach 2 Timothy 2.15 until midway through Dr. MacArthur's message today. (laughs) And then eagerness turned into mild panic attack. (laughs) But we press on. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 Reads, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Amen. A worthy workman. In the business world, there is a term the bottom line. It is used in reference to financial reports. It is the last line of a report that shows profit and or loss. It is about whether or not the company is earning money or losing money. And in the business world, everything is about that bottom line. In fact, as they say, the bottom line is the bottom line. It's an economic term, but every field of life and labor has a bottom line, an intended outcome, a crucial factor. In business, it is making money, earning revenue, increasing stock value. In education, it is making grades, passing tests, getting degrees. In sports, it is winning games, winning awards, winning championships. What is the bottom line of Christian ministry? Just asking that feels odd. Because the answer to that question should be assumed among us. A no-brainer. A ground ball. Unfortunately, the sad indictment is many pastors, congregational leaders, and local churches suffer from a ministerial identity crisis from a lack of gospel passion and priority, from mixed-up priorities. There are many these days who seem to be absolutely confused about what the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be and do. Tonight in our time together, I simply want to call us to go back to the basics and consider the bottom line of Christian ministry. It is succinctly stated here in 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best 
to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This positive exhortation is a part of a larger context in which Paul is warning Timothy about the danger of false teaching in the church. The verse before, verse 14, he says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. On the other side of our verse, verse 16 and 17 says, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. This is Paul's concern in this passage, that Timothy would be on guard against false teaching that leads to ungodliness. He illustrates verse 17 and 18, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hermeneus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith. Of some. In fact, in First Timothy chapter one, he mentions in verse number twenty that he's had to hand over Hymenaeus to Satan that he may learn not to blaspheme. The imminent threat, great danger, and corrupting influence of false teaching bids Paul here to call Timothy to practice careful, diligent, pastoral oversight. This this passage is a call to, to diligent congregational watch. But it is in this context that we find 2 Timothy 2.15, which is not about congregational watch. It is about self-watch. In a real sense, Paul is saying to Timothy that there's no way you can watch over the church as you should if, if you can't watch over your own motives and conduct and doctrine. Yes, Paul is concerned about what Hermeneus and Philetus are doing and teaching, but he is even more concerned about what Timothy does and teaches. So he says to Timothy, and through this text, God says to you and me tonight, brothers, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This is the bottom line of Christian ministry. In a succinct statement, it is this. Please God in everything you do. Please God in everything you do. A young pastor began his first work The leaders called him into a meeting and they wanted to introduce themselves, they said, but 
beyond that introduction, they all emphasize their particular departments and in no subtle terms made it clear to him that the kingdom of God would come only to the degree that he made their department his priority. He sat and listened to them all speak. When they finally finished, he stood and thanked them all for their advice and said he'll do whatever he can to please them, but more importantly, it was his calling there to do what pleased God, and he sat down and the meeting was over. I repeat, the bottom line of Christian ministry is to please God in everything you do. And in the three clauses of this verse, may I lift three requirements of God-pleasing ministry. Three requirements of God-pleasing ministry. First, God-pleasing ministry requires personal earnestness. Personal earnestness. In fact, this clause that begins the verse outlines for us both the practice and the purpose of ministerial earnestness. Consider the practice of earnestness. Paul says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. I grew up with an older translation of the Bible that Read study to show thyself approved. It's a good reminder. I remember some years ago thumbing through a Christian magazine and seeing an advertisement for the MacArthur Study Bible that was soon to be released, and the ad said that someone asked Dr. MacArthur what the difference between an average preacher and a good preacher was, and they were surprised by his response. He answered, great preachers stay in the seat until the hard work is done. And so in a real sense, diligence in ministry requires that that you study. It requires diligent study. But the term here indicates more than that. It literally means to use speed or to make haste. And so it indicates one that, that exerts energy. It means to be diligent, to make every effort. When translation says it that way, be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved. Here, the, the text says, do your best. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Brothers, the ministry of Jesus Christ deserves our best. God deserves the best that we can offer him. If it bears 
God's name, it deserves our best. Kathy Rigby is a gymnast that trained for a gold medal in the 1972 Olympic Games. When she fell short, she rushed over to her parents in the stands and collapsed in their arms in tears. They assured her that they loved her and that they were proud of her. She would say that during that critical moment, her mother said one sentence to her that marked her life. Simply, her mother said, doing your best is more important than being the best. Paul says, do your best. To present yourself to God as one approved. Do your best. He is not calling Timothy to be better than anyone else. This is not about comparison. It's not about competition. It is not about coming in ahead of anyone else. You are simply to give God your best. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Give God your best. Brothers, when you give God your best, it'll help you endure during the inevitable times of difficulty and weariness and frustration in ministry. You can pillow your head at night. Say, Lord, things may not be going according to plan. They may not be receptive of my service. There doesn't seem to be much fruit from my labor, but Lord, you know that I am giving you my best. When you give God your best, no matter what the circumstance or situation is, you'll be able to serve with renewed strength. with great hope, with the smile of heaven on you. Old song says, if when you give the best of your service, telling the world that the Savior has come, be not dismayed if men don't believe you, he'll understand and say, well done. So we see here the practice of earnestness, but also consider the purpose of earnestness. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. The the word here, present, is terminology for the presentation of an offering of worship to God. Romans chapter 1 Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul exhorts us to present our bodies as living sacrifices. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 29, Paul says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and presenting everyone, warning and teaching everyone, that is, in our wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ Jesus. Paul uses the term here as he exhorts Timothy to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. 
The language he chooses here is a reminder, brothers, that every act of ministry should be done as an act of worship. Every act of ministry should be done as an act of worship. Do your best to present yourself to God as one who is approved. <laughs> I, won't, I won't explain approved with any language studies. If you got a credit card, a debit card, you know what approved is. <laughs> you, you put your item on the counter, they give you the amount, and you swipe the card. And the digital readout will say one of two things back to you. <laughs> Declined or approved. It is a reminder that God has a sovereign scanning system for each of us. And we are to do every act of ministry as an act of worship that we might be approved before God. In a real sense, this is what God is working in us. He is working in us to will and to do for his good pleasure that we might be approved before him. The term here is used for the testing of precious metals. It is a reminder that if your ministry is going to be pleasing to God, there are going to be times when you will have to go through the fire. A.W. Tozer famously said that it is doubtful that the Lord can use a man greatly until he first hurts him tremendously. There are times you're going to have to go through the fire to be reminded, brothers, it is not about you. Candle must be burned to give light. Coal must be consumed. Wheat must be ground. Grapes must be crushed to produce wine. And the servant of the Lord must be tested to be approved before God. May the Lord help you to practice steadfast endurance through every danger, toil, and snare. So that you may say with Job 23 and 10, he knows the path that I have taken. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as pure gold. God-pleasing ministry, first of all, requires personal earnestness. Secondly, God-pleasing ministry requires ministerial excellence. Ministerial excellence. John MacArthur has once said, now is the time for the strongest men to preach the strongest message in the context of the strongest ministries. It's a good summary of, of, of this notion of ministerial excellence. It has nothing to do with size or, or style or sensationalism. It has everything to do with the second clause here. 
being a worker who has no need to be ashamed. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. So on one hand, we're reminded here that ministerial excellence is hard work. You are to be a worker. You're to be a laborer. Cannot please God if you suffer from ministerial sloth. It is unfortunate that in many instances, churches think their pastors don't work all week. Sometimes that's because they don't think we work on Sunday mornings either. (laughs) The man of God should be known for hard work. The ministry that costs is the ministry that counts. We should serve the Lord with diligent toil and labor. Colossians chapter 1 Verse 28, again, Paul says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ Jesus. And in that 29th verse, he says, for this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that powerfully works in me. First Timothy chapter 4 Verse 10, again, Paul says, for to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Mark it down, brothers. Faithful ministry is hard work. Godly living is hard work. Diligent study is hard work. Work, sound, doctrine requires hard work. Wise leadership involves hard work. Intercessory prayer is hard work. It's hard work. If you want some light, leisurely life, you need to go do something else. Ministry is hard work. But I wish I had a sermon's worth of time to testify it's worth what it costs. It's worth what it costs to serve the Lord. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10 says that God is not unjust. And he will not forget the love that you have shown him by serving his people as you continue to do. Ministerial excellence is hard work, but Not only is it hard work, it is also holy work. It is holy work. Paul constantly in his writings motivates his readers to Christian service, and he uses various means to motivate saints to serve. Duty, gift, judgment, love opportunity, reward. 
Here, Paul motivates Timothy with a neglected but important means of motivation for ministry. Shame. You want an interesting study personally? Just consider Paul's doctrine of shame. Romans 1, 16, he was eager to preach because he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Writing from prison in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, he says it was his great expectation, whether he lived or died, that in nothing would he be put to shame. Because verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And here Paul says to Timothy, you must do your best to present yourself to God as one approved so that you will be a worker who has no need to be ashamed. And let me be clear. This is not shame before man. It is shame before God. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus warns, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father in heaven. For on that day, there will be many who say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your names? And I will say to them, I never knew you. May that passage constantly haunt us, brothers. You can be a smashing success with man and a horrible failure with God. You you can think you are doing great ministerial stuff and get to heaven and have to introduce yourself. Our heart's burden should be that when we stand before the Lord in that final inspection, that we would not be put to shame. When my son, H.B., started school, as a little tyke, his first teacher gave him a journal to bring home every day with homework and assignments, etc., but also... Uh, she would put, she told us, either a happy face or a sad face on the journal each day to note his behavior in class. I warned her <laughs> that you should, you should give those sad faces out carefully because if he comes home with a sad face, there would be consequences he would have to face. (laughs) He understood that. And uh, he would rush home, find me in the house and show me his journal and say, see, Daddy, I got a happy face. Are you proud of me? (laughs) 
If he got home and I was napping, he'd wake me up and say, Daddy, I, I got a happy face. Are you proud of me? If I was still at the office or somewhere preaching, he, he'd make sure his mother called me immediately and let me know he got a happy face. Daddy, are you proud of me? One afternoon, however, <laughs> I, I was taking a nap, and when I woke up, my, my wife, Crystal, is at the foot of the bed in tears. And uh, I asked her what the matter was. She said, your son, that's how I know how things are going around my house. <laughs> when, the, when the kids acting right, they hers. And when they messing up, they mine. Your, your son got in trouble today, had an incident with another boy in class, and got a sad face. And I told him, I didn't say anything to him. I told him, you're going to have to deal with your dad when you get home. I got here and you were asleep. And I set the journal next to you on the bed so that you would see it when you woke up. I went downstairs to start dinner, but when I came back up, you were asleep and the journal was gone. And she said, something instinctively told me to look under the bed. And he had tucked it under the bed. His answer was logical, if not legitimate. He didn't want to face the trouble he knew was coming. I think about that story often when I think of this text. We may giggle at my son, Trey. The truth of the matter is, God is keeping a journal on us. How we live, how we lead, what we teach. He has a record. He, he doesn't need anybody to tell on us. He sees it all. And we need to live in light of the fact that we will have to answer to the Lord for how we have lived our lives and how we have conducted our ministry. Second Timothy chapter, second Corinthians chapter five, verse 10 says, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what is due for the things we have done in these bodies, whether it be good or evil. May that warn us when we are tempted to go astray. May that encourage us to press on when we are at a difficult place. Famous evangelist in church history was criticized by another preacher and they rushed to him to see what his response was going to be. He gave none. He just simply said, I'll, I'll just wait for the judgment seat of Christ to bear me out. There'll be some 
times in life and ministry where your hope is that the judgment seat of Christ will bear you out. You live and minister with the goal to hear the Lord say on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. God-pleasing ministry requires personal earnestness. God-pleasing ministry requires ministerial excellence. May I thirdly say to you that God-pleasing ministry requires faithful exposition. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling, rightly dividing the word of truth. As we heard earlier, the term here means to to cut it straight. It is the picture of a doctor who carefully makes an incision. It is the picture of an architect who carefully designs so the building will stand. It is a picture of a tent maker who carefully cuts the cloth so the tent will stand firm. It is a construction worker who carefully builds Plowman who faithfully plows. The the term is only used here in the New Testament, but in the Septuagint, it is used in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. It's also used in Proverbs 11, verse 5. The righteousness of the blameless makes his way straight. We don't know what nuance Paul intended here, but the bottom line is clear. God-pleasing ministry requires an unwavering commitment to faithful exposition. Charles Spurgeon said that every minister must do this to make full proof of his ministry and to be clear of the blood of his hearers on that last and great day. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom. And stop there for just a moment. What, what, what pastoral assignment could be so great that, that Paul presses on Timothy the weight of eternity? God, Christ, the judgment, the kingdom, the second coming. He doesn't tell him to build the buildings and oversee the programs and lead the meetings and Come up with the tricks and visit the sick. All of those things may have their place in your assignment, but the primary, definitive, and central function of the Christian pastor is to preach the word. The imperative is all important. Preach. But the object is is even more important. 
Preach the word. We don't have editorial authority over the content of the message. We must faithfully preach the word in season and out of season. This is what our times so desperately need. Faithful men who will preach the word in season and out of season. Preach the word. Not personal opinion. Preach the word. Not motivational talks. Preach the word. Not self-help advice. Preach the word. Not political perspectives. Preach the word. Not trendy theology. Preach the word. Not health and wealth blasphemy. Preach the word. Not pop psychology. Preach the word. When the saints gather on the Lord's day, they don't need your analysis of of what they talking about on CNN and Fox News and MS. No, no, they need news from another network. (laughs) Preach the word in season and out of season. And to do so faithfully, you must rightly divide the word of truth. The word of God is marked handle with care. I remember as a boy preacher getting an opportunity to speak at a Sunday evening service at a church. The pastor's son came into the office. He had preached that morning at a vacant church. His father asked him how it went. He said it didn't go well at all. His father asked why. He said, so did I. (laughs) He said, the deacon told me that the congregation tuned me out when I came into the service and sat in the pulpit and, and put my Bible on the floor under the seat. They were so offended that I put the Bible on the floor, the deacon said, they asked not to have him come back. And I was impressed as a young man sitting, listening to this conversation about how the word of God should be treated. But oh, brothers, unfortunately, There are many who are careful about how they handle their copy of Scripture and they're not careful about how they handle the content of the Scriptures. Beware, because Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. We must preach the word in season and out of season. 
We must proclaim the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Cut it straight. Tell the truth. Stand your ground. Don't sell out. Until you hear him say, well done. One of the men who taught me preaching came to preach for me years ago, and between services during Sunday school, we chatted in the office, and he browsed the church bulletin, and there was a note to pray for me because I was preaching an event. There would be pastors filling up this event. He asked me, about it. I told him it was my first time preaching something like this. And he, he said, um, well, how, how are you going to approach that? I said, well, I think instead of focusing on the preachers that are in the room, I'm going to just look beyond the preachers and try to focus on the congregation that's there. This wise, godly pastor, in his gracious way, gently said to me, HB, that's one way to look at it. He says, but when I'm, when I'm in settings where I have to stand to preach, I think about it a little different. I don't focus on the preachers or the congregation. I just strive to preach to an audience of one. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Remember, you may build great cathedrals, large or small. You may build skyscrapers, grand and tall. You may conquer all the failures of your past, but only what you do for Christ will last. My verse of that song says, you may seek earthly fortune and fame. The world might be impressed by your great name, but soon the glories of this life will all be past, and only what you do for Christ will last. Give God your best. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your word and the high and holy calling you have placed on our lives. We who are unworthy recipients of your ministry of reconciliation to us in Christ by your free and sovereign grace, and yet you have made us messengers of reconciliation to the needy world who needs the hope of Christ. You've appointed us to be overseers and shepherds in the flock that you have purchased with your own blood. Father, help us not to compromise the holy calling you have placed on our lives for the approval of man. Material possessions, ecclesiastical prominence. Help us to be faithful wherever you have assigned us. Help us to present ourselves to you as approved. 
as we guard our life and our doctrine and persevere in so doing. Help us to be workmen who have no need to be ashamed. Help us to rightly handle the word of truth to your glory. Amen.